0: And we come into Revelation chapter 15 and 16 in our study this evening, and before we break into chapter 15, I think it would be useful to sketch a bit of an overview as to uh, the interaction of chapters 14 through 18, as I think that's a, a little bit of difficulty to understand that uh, these chapters are not flowing in a, in a linear pattern, but are uh, giving more details about things that were already talked about. Chapter 14, as we observed last week, remember we have the prophetic certainty. Babylon has fallen. Fallen fallen is Babylon, declaring what is about to take place. That there is going to be the fall of the Roman Empire, this Babylon the great, this world empire, it's going to come to its knees. Hasn't happened yet, but it's projected to happen and stated in prophetic certainty. And now we're going to come into chapter 15. Chapter 15 is going to be the preparations for that judgment. Chapter 16 is going to give us the sketches and general overview of what that judgment will look like. And then chapters 17 and 18 will go through the details of what that judgment will be. So very important to go through is we're going to get to the end of chapter 16 and we're going to read, it's done, it's finished, it's over, and you're like, well, wait a minute, we've got all these chapters still to go. Well, chapter 17 and 18 is going to go back and go, now let me tell you more about what that looked like. In fact, if you go home and study the beginning of chapter 17, you'll notice... The angel says, let's tell you a little bit more about that. And so just following the flow of that, 14 is the statement that's going to occur. Chapter 15 is the preparations for that judgment. Chapter 16 then describes that judgment. 17 and 18 then give us the details of that judgment. So that's how we're, how we're flowing through. We'll stay with 15 and 16 tonight, but I think that's one of the reasons why we can conquer two chapters tonight because we're not given a lot of details, not a lot of hard information, Uh, A couple of big enchiladas along the way, like Armageddon, will slow down and, and sit in that a little bit. But other than that, things are just kind of being sketched out for us about how things are going to transpire. Let's read chapter 15 and look at what we see transpiring in this chapter. Chapter 15 of the book of Revelation. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And while the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls uh, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever, and the sanctuary was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. as the word of the Lord. Okay, let's look at chapter 15. and Notice it's really preparatory. We have these seven angels appear. new sign is given to us. Chapter 15 begins with us looking back into the heavenly throne room yet again. We see the sea of glass mingled with fire. We're reading the four living creatures. So we are revisiting what we read back in chapters 4 and 5 where we saw that throne room scene with the 24 elders, the four living creatures. Here we look and now we see seven angels. And they are carrying seven plagues. And what is stated about these seven angels and what they are about to do is really important. Two fold statements made there about what is going to be accomplished. The first is notice that the angel tells us that this is it. This is the end of the judgments. This is God now coming to rest about the things that are going to take place on the earth. And so with these bowls of wrath, we see God's wrath is finished. This is the last of the judgments. And so that's one of the reasons why when we read chapter 17 and 18, we need to fit them into the scope of what's being told to us here and not think, well, now, next on the list. This is the finale of the events that are going to take place about the kingdoms of the world and their judgments. You also notice in verse 2, The imagery of these these that have conquered the beast, its image, and the number of the name. Remember we saw that back in chapter 13. We saw the beast. We saw the number 666. We saw the image, the Caesar worship that surrounded the making of the image, compelling the people of the earth to worship the beast. And so this is what is being pictured here is these are the ones who have conquered the beast, conquered the image, conquered the number. And of course, that is not saying that well here are the Christians who went to military battle against the world empire notice that they're victorious we have seen throughout the book of Revelation that this victory comes through faithfulness and through purity we have seen that call being made throughout the book we saw it in chapter 14 we saw it in chapter 13 here is a call for endurance here is a call for the faithfulness of the people of God do not succumb to the beast do not worship its image Realize the deception that is being laid out. Worship the Lamb. Worship God alone. And so here is the imagery now of these are the ones that have done so. These are the ones who have been victorious because they did not worship the beast. They did not participate in the sacrifices and the Caesar worship and the things that we looked at back in chapter 13. They have been victorious. I would go ahead and say in summary, this is still our 144,000. We've seen this imagery a few times. Back in chapter 7, they're the ones who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They're victorious. We saw them again in chapter 14 standing on Mount Zion, victorious with the Lamb because they've overcome the beast because they have the mark on their foreheads of the name of the Father and the name of the Lamb. And so now in chapter 15, who are we seeing? It's the same group of people. These are the servants of God who have been sealed. They are pictured as victorious because they have not succumbed to the beast and do not worship its image. And so that's what the first two verses are setting up for us is here is the victory of the saints and this is going to be a a great statement of victory and praise of victory and that's what chapter or excuse me verse 3 is using here and you see the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. If you remember when the song of Moses appears that's after the victory over Egypt. When they cross through the Red Sea they come to the other side. The Egyptians are wiped out when the Red Sea He closes over them and they sing the song of Moses, which is a song of victory as they praise God for destroying the enemy, destroying that world power and bringing about justice and deliverance to the people of God. Same idea. We are praising God because the world nation has been brought to its knees and they are victorious, the people of God, because they have been delivered through such a difficulty. And so that's the idea is praising God for His great deeds. And you see that stated there in verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. If you know some of the newer songs, there is a newer song that uses the words from those verses right there, but I don't know it well enough to teach you. I just know the verse 3. I can hear it in my head going, yeah, I know that song. Uh, but I'm not sure if it's in our song books or not. But great words there. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. It's a great picture of who God is. Notice verse 5. As now we get some great imagery as as things are about to unfold. Uh, I'm not thrilled with the way the ESV words this. It's similar to most translations in verse 5, but there's too many of's that you kind of get lost into what's being said when you say the sanctuary of the tent of witness that's in heaven was open. Well, what are we talking about here? And there's a few other translations. The TNIV gets gets it pretty good and it's describing. Here's what he saw. In heaven, the temple. Well, what are we talking about? the tabernacle of the covenant law or the tabernacle of testimony you have the bringing in of the imagery of the tabernacle and the temple being here uh, we, remember we saw that throughout Revelation as we went through our studies where is the true temple it's not on earth it's in heaven where is the true tabernacle it's not on earth it's in heaven we saw that in chapter 11 talking about the courtyard being cast out and trampled by the Gentiles. And we saw then at the end of chapter 11, the new temple being in heaven. Inside that temple was the Ark of the Covenant. Hopefully you remember that back in chapter 11. And so here is that imagery again. Here is God. The temple doors are opened. It's the tabernacle. It's the true realities. If we were to go back to our Hebrew study, the actual place of where God is. And so the doors are open, and that's going to bring about these events. Verse 6. Out of the sanctuary are the seven angels. They are dressed in similarly priestly attire imagery that we see like in the book of Daniel of how angels are dressed, pure bright linens, golden sash around their chests And notice what they are given. They are given bowls of wrath. That doesn't take an awful lot of work to figure out the symbolism of this. This is bad news, okay? Uh, Nothing good going on here. And if you think about it, none of our sevens have been good. Uh, The seven seals brought judgment. The seven trumpets brought judgment. The seven thunders, we assume, brought judgment, though we weren't told. Remember, that was sealed up. And then we have the seven bulls now. And these are the seven bulls of wrath. And that also comes from Isaiah. Isaiah, in a couple of places, describes the wrath of god as being a bowl that is going to be drunk down to the bottom meaning you are going to receive all of god's wrath you aren't going to take a sip of it and then get to leave the rest on the table you're going to drink it all the way down to the dregs isaiah 51 verse 17 wake yourself wake yourself stand up o jerusalem you have drunk from the hand of the lord the cup of his wrath you have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering so we've already seen in the previous chapter, remember the, bowl, the cup of God's wrath being full strength with an undiluted, it was going to be God's anger and fury in this wrath that's about to come. And now we are seeing that unfold as these bowls of wrath are being presented, and the idea is there's going to be a full-blown suffering and punishment that comes from God. A couple of verses later, Isaiah 51, verse 22, thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And so, same kind of imagery, same picture of this is the cup of God's wrath. It's going to be drunk, it's not going to be. And then finally, verse 7 shows that they are given the bulls from God. Verse 8 uh, is the sanctuary that is filled with smoke and the glory of God of His power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. The idea is God is in action. The smoke of the temple is now being formed. The glory of God is in action. God is moving. God is acting. God is working now. He is going to bring these judgments these things are now going to unfold. And that's what chapter 16 is going to do for us now is describe, here's how it's going to go. Chapter 15 was prepping all of that. The victory of the saints. Where are they? They're before before the throne of God. They're around the sea of glass. They're praising God for the victory that's about to come. Another image of prophetic certainty. Surely it's going to fall. We're praising God for that fall. Chapter 15 ends. Smoke of the glory of God. God is in motion. God is acting. Here comes the judgments. So that leaves us now to chapter 16. You see why we can do two chapters? Because I got to chapter 15 and went, well, that would have been fast. <laughs> we got to move right along. So let's look at 16. Let's read all of chapter 16. Listen to the word of the Lord. Verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the wrath of God. As we read this, let me interject a second. Notice the brevity of these first five bulls. Notice the shortness of their description in contrast to bull six and bull seven. I think that's interesting as we read it. Verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the image, the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, and they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no, mountain, no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Did you notice the brevity of those first five? That's what I find so fascinating. After all the work that we've done, and think about all the details of the seven seals, and think about all the details of the seven trumpets, and then we get to these first five bulls, and it's just kind of like bam, 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 bam and the reason i'm going to say reasoning behind that i think is to show us that the intention right here is not to slow down on the details and start projecting now this one represents this and the the sun burning on the people that represents this that doesn't seem to be the intention if God wanted us to get that then he would have slowed down and given us the details and given us the imagery to go back to the Old Testament like we've done throughout this book and say oh ok here's the symbol here's what that means he doesn't do that here he doesn't slow down and give us details until the 6th and the 7th bull where we then can go ok well, we see this here we see this here Here's the imagery. And so I think the first idea for us is to recognize that we are supposed to go through this fairly swiftly. But this is just an overview of what this judgment is going to look like. Chapter seventeen and eighteen are going to be the details. This is just the overview of how it's going to go. So don't think we've just buzzed through and we just kind of put our hands in our pockets and well we got nothing here. Chapter seventeen and eighteen is going to give us those details. Right now, just an overview. And as you read this chapter, recognize the similarities to the plagues that occurred on Egypt. Recognize the parallel that is being connected here. Not that we would read into this and go, okay, the sun means this and the rivers mean that and the sea being turned to blood means this, but more to recognize, feel the weight of how this is like, the plagues that befell Egypt. And the meaning of those plagues was, lights out for Egypt, it was going to fall, its power would be taken, and God's people were going to be delivered. I think that's the idea here. But let's quickly look at each of those bulls. We have in verse 1 our first bull here. and Notice it's painful sores. Similar to what happened with the Egyptian plagues. Think of the boils and the painful sores that happened on the people there again. And just connecting that to say we are reading about God dropping plagues on a world nation because of its sins. Second bull, sea turns into blood. I've got to be a reminder of that very first plague where the water turns into Blood And notice that's what plague 2 or bowl 2 and bowl 3 do. First bowl of the sea, second bowl turns the rest of the waters, the rivers into blood as well. So it brings to mind that very first plague of what Moses did against Egypt. The key that we do get here in a little bit of detail is in verses 5, 6, and 7, where we're told the reasoning behind God's wrath because they've killed the people of God. We saw that back in chapter 13. Remember, we are being told about this very dark and awful time when the Christians are going to not be able to buy and sell, when they're going to be killed for not worshiping the image. And so here is chapter 16 saying, God is going to be just and righteous and bring judgment on that nation for doing so. And notice that's what you see in verse 5. Just are you holy, uh, the Holy One who is, who was for you have brought these judgments. Then verse 7, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty true and just are your judgments. This is just a vindication that God must do this because what the empire has done to the Christians, what was prophesied in chapter 13, here is now the vindication. God is going to judge this nation because of what is being done to the people of God. That brings us to verse 8 where we get the fourth bowl. We're being scorched by fire. I think the important takeaway is twofold. One, the great pain that is being described here. Great suffering is going to occur during this judgment that God is going to give. And how often God does that. God tries to give us a visualization that these judgments are going to be fierce. This is not going to be something you want to endure. You don't want to participate in these things. Worship God as we saw back in chapter 14 before it is too late. That was the call of the first angel. So you have here this picture. There's going to be great suffering, but notice verse, end of verse 9, the intended result does not occur. They did not repent. These judgments are coming. We saw the angel's proclamation in chapter 14 last week. Turn to God before it's too late. The, judge, the hour of judgment has come. The people do not repent. And so the picture is that means the next bull has to come. Time to unleash the rest of God's wrath, the rest of God's judgment. Verse 10 gives us the fifth bull. A little bit more imagery for us here. To pour out this wrath on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Great imagery here to say, now the wrath is being poured out on the throne of the beast. This tells us the authority of this Babylon the Great, this Roman Empire, it's going to be destroyed. In fact, we've seen that imagery all throughout our study so far. When the sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give its light, the stars fall from the sky, darkness is the imagery of lights out for the nation. Think about the Egyptian plagues. How does it come to a conclusion right before the death of the firstborn? Ninth plague, darkness. Lights out. It's game over for this nation. They're not going to survive this. Same idea here. As darkness is poured out on the throne of the beast, it's the end of its authority. It's the end of its rule. It's time for it to collapse. And yet, verse 11, they did not repent of their deeds. Still not smart, Still not rising up, still not seeing that God is bringing this judgment. They're not listening to the proclamation of the angel of the eternal gospel to turn to God before it's too late. Still yet again, they do not repent. That brings us to the sixth bowl. Now we'll slow down, because here we've got quite a bit of detail. We'll spend a lot of time here, because now the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the, on the great Euphrates. And the water dries up and notice he does not say. and then the seventh angel, he stops here and says, now let me tell you something. So that tells us we need to stop and look at the details of what does it mean in this imagery of, okay, the river Euphrates is, is dried up. That was imagery that was used to describe a coming war and the overthrowing of a world power. And the reason why is historical as well as biblical. Remember a little bit of history how the Medo-Persian Empire is able to overthrow the Babylonians. I had it in my old Bible that my dad gave me when I was 16 years old and I wrote in the very back on the white pages the dimensions of the walls of the city of Babylon because it's unbelievable the size and that's what caused the Babylonians to think they could never be conquered. The Medes and the Persians had already surrounded the city and inside the Babylonians are having a party. In fact, the book of Daniel records that very scene taking place. Little did the Babylonians know as they're getting drunk and having their party while the Medes and the Persians are outside is that the city of Babylon is sitting on the Euphrates River and Cyrus and his guys took some time and diverted the water so that they could go under the walls of the city and come in and attack them by surprise and that's how Babylon fell. That's the imagery behind this. Talk about the drying up the Euphrates against Babylon the Great is to say, you're done. You are going to fall. It is your time. And that's why that imagery is given to us here as Rome is described as this Babylon the Great is to picture the conquering that is going to take place. You think you're impervious and you are not going to fall. How wrong you are, you are going to fall like Babylon fell. Similar language to say, your doom is certain. Along with that, the other image that comes along with that in verse 12, it says to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And that is used also... By the prophets, I have on the screen there Isaiah, he uses that imagery to describe here is a nation coming to battle against Babylon. That's how Isaiah used it. So you can feel the weight of what this verse is doing and showing what this sixth bull is accomplishing. This great Roman Empire, which has been symbolized by the imagery Babylon the Great and then turn and use prophecies that Isaiah gave about Babylon and use it now against the modern Babylon, the Roman Empire, and say just as Babylon of ancient days fell because the Euphrates dried up as the river was diverted so that the Medes and the Persians could come in and conquer kings of the east, so also now the Roman Empire is going to fall in a similar fashion. Not saying that somebody's going to dig under the walls, but saying, just as their doom was certain and they were brought to nothing and that was the end of their empire and it was lights out for Babylon so also the Roman Empire so also they will fall as well notice verse 13 and 14 Roman Empire doesn't just roll over and give up great imagery here really neat images out of the mouth of the dragon alright back to chapter 12 who's the dragon Satan. And out of the mouth of the beast. Alright, who's the beast? Chapter 13, Roman Empire. Emperor's political power, military. And the mouth of the false prophet. The end of chapter 13, that was the second beast, also called the false prophet. The uh, subordinate provinces, the subordinate localities that enforced the worship of the emperor. All three of them have been working together in causing pain and suffering and persecution and death of the Christians. They are not stopping. And so those the imagery. Out of their mouths come these unclean spirits like frogs. Also has a little bit of a hearkening to... Those plagues, again, back in Egypt with the frog language here. But the unclean spirits, notice verse 14, they're demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of of God Almighty. The imagery is they continue to deceive the world. And that's the idea of the unclean spirits. So they are continuing their deception just as we saw the false prophet, that second beast doing in chapter 13, They're not done. They haven't repented of their sins. They're still deceiving the world. And to use the imagery of unclean spirits is the idea of immorality. They're continuing their evil ways. They're continuing to sway the world to worship the beast and continuing to reject God and accept their emperors and their paganism as the true way to worship. That is not foreign to the New Testament. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a, a text that we did not that long ago in our Sunday morning Bible class, where we have the Apostle Paul say, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants of demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There's that language of demons or unclean spirits being used to describe paganism, idolatry, immorality. You cannot, in that context that Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians 10 as he's telling them, you cannot go and participate in the pagan sacrifices and go eat in fellowship of the worship of those idols and then turn around and participate in the Lord's Supper and partake in the cup of the Lord. You can't do it. You can't have fellowship with both. And so as a symbol of the unclean spirits, the demon idea is this is immoral, this is idolatry, this is evil, you cannot participate in both. In fact he'd go on and say you cannot be in fellowship with Belial and God at the same time that's not going to work. That's the reason for the imagery here. We shouldn't be weirded out by the language of unclean spirits coming out of their mouths like frogs. Simply symbolism of They're still continuing their iniquity. They're still continuing the idolatry and the paganism and the Caesar worship. All that we read about in chapter 13 hasn't stopped. That's still going on. And that's what's going to bring about this culmination of battle that's being described for us here that we'll look at in just a moment. Verse 16 is probably... One of the more famous verses, probably about number two or three on the list after 666, somewhere in there. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I think it is very important to observe here is that he never says that there's a battle that takes place there. Notice this is the assembling that takes place here. I think that's also useful. That will come back into play in a couple of chapters. When we get later on, we're going to read about the kings of the earth assembling again and what's going to happen. But nothing's happened yet. All this is is, is just a description of this is going to be a great gathering as this nation attempts to continue to stand against God. Babylon is not giving up and saying, oh, you're right, we need to be worshiping God. Let's stop all of our paganism. Let's stop our Caesar worship and go turn to God. No, that's not going to happen at all. They continue to deceive the unclean spirits, continue the immorality, continue the idolatry. Now the big question is, why does God use the imagery of Armageddon? Why is that the location of the gathering? Why is that the place where everybody's coming together to prepare for battle? It is extremely interesting on a number of levels what Armageddon is about. Literally, that means Mount of Megiddo. Now the problem with that is, there's nowhere in the Bible that we read about a Mount of Megiddo. There's a plain of Megiddo, there's a thing next to a wadi that's called a Megiddo, but we don't. Have any mountains or mounts that are called Megiddo. And so, what that does is I think reinforces to us that this is figurative language. We've seen that throughout the book. We need to continue it now. And so, we ask the question what's the figure? What's the symbol behind Armageddon? What's the symbol behind the Megiddo? And I think the answer is that when we read about Megiddo in the Old Testament you will notice that that is the location of many decisive victories taking place. In fact, a lot of losses take place there. For example, Ahaziah the king of Judah, he's slain there in 1 Kings 9 verse 27. In going out to battle he dies in battle at that place called Megiddo. You'll also consider, remember, Josiah that's where he dies as well. He He goes into battle wasn't supposed to does it anyway and what happens he gets killed there as well decisive loss takes place against him and then you can read in Judges that this was a location where kings fought all the time by the waters of Megiddo so that kind of begins to give us a little bit of an imagery a little bit of a picture of Armageddon stands for a location where decisive battles occurred. This is a place where decisive battles took place and something's going to happen here. And consider that the decisive battles are in the bad, not in the good. This location was not where we read of and Josiah would... It's where Josiah lost. It's not where the kings won, it's where the kings lost. And so that's going to help us in the imagery that these are decisive battles that bring a crushing blow to those who gather there. We haven't got there yet, but I think we can begin to feel the tension that's being laid here. If all the kings of the east and the dragon and all of them are coming to this place, Quote, unquote," figurative location of Megiddo a place where decisive battles occur and where those people are lose decisively we know what's about to happen you don't want to be here this is already giving us a little bit of foreshadowing that these kings are going to lose this empire is going to fall let them gather all their armies It's going to be wipeout when they all gather for this battle. And that's what this Armageddon imagery then is standing for us. And so I think the idea then that this is carrying for us is that Satan's work, chapter 12, through the Roman Empire, chapter 13, he's the one that brought this beast up and has brought about this idolatry and all of this Caesar worship. It's going to fall, it's going to fail, it's going to be destroyed, it's going to come to an end. They may assemble for battle, they think they can stand against God, but they are sorely mistaken. They are surely going to lose, they are going to be struck down with a decisive loss. In fact, if I can allow you to project to chapter 19 for a moment, and who do we see at the end of chapter 19? But this one who is king of kings and lord of lords, riding in on a white horse, and he is blood-stained, and it's a picture of victory as he comes in. He's destroyed the enemies. He's trampled them out. He's wiped out these who have come together against him. And so that's where we're going in this book. And right now we're getting that foreshadowing of doom that's about to happen. And so their gathering at Armageddon is a symbol of their judgment and a symbol of their destruction. And let me give you one key just to remember here of what we've seen with all of these sevens. All of these sevens, like these seven bulls, are images of God's judgment on a nation, not images of success by Satan. We read the seven seals, and we read the seven trumpets, and now the seven bulls. It is a statement always of God's victory, God's judgment on a nation. We should not approach Armageddon and do what most premillennialists and futurists do of, whoa, well, this is going to be the Antichrist, and he's going to fight hard against God, and it's going to be awful, and, and they're going to really win a big one, and it's going to be chaos. No, 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 no. You've reversed the whole imagery of the bulls. This is God striking down the wicked. Not the wicked striking against God. And that's why I observed with you, there's no battle described here. It's just the kings of the earth gathering in a place where they're going to have be struck a decisive loss. They are going to lose. Which brings in verse 15, and we'll talk about this at the end of the lesson, but be prepared. Notice the little parenthetical there in verse 15. Be ready. Have your garments on. Be prepared. This judgment is going to come. Be ready for the fall that's going to take place because it's going to be severe. And chapter 18 is going to tell us the massive, massive political and economic fallout that's going to happen when this empire falls. But chapter 16, we're still sketching. When we get to chapter 18, we'll get the weight of that. But that's why 15, verse 15 tells us right here. Be ready... While this is going to be a victory for God, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. Let's get in the seventh bowl, and then the lesson will be yours tonight. Verse 17, the seventh angel pours out his bowl and wants the statement. Done. Over and done. When we read this, we have now come to the sum conclusion. Remember we were told at the beginning of the chapter, when the seven bulls are poured out, that's the end of God's wrath. God's judgments are final. The seventh angel pours out his bull. The symbolism is the empire has been destroyed. It's fallen. The earthquake symbolizes that as well. In verse 18, flashes of lightning rumbles, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, because that's how a lot of cities fell back in those days. You would have the desolation of a city because of an earthquake. So that's why the that imagery is used a lot in the Old Testament Prophets as well as here, God has brought His fury against the Babylon the Great. You see it in verse 19. Notice it describes there the great city falls and the na- cities of the nations fell. I think this is intended to show not just simply the city itself. This isn't just simply on Rome. This is the whole empire that's going to crumble. This is the whole thing that's going to fall apart. And I love the end of verse 19. God remembered... Babble on the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. <laughs> I don't think you could paint that picture much stronger. Notice he uses fury and wrath. He says that kind of twice there. He's double up. And then he says, You've got to drink the cup. And then he says you have to drain it all the way down. Lights out. It's over. And that's why the angel says it's done. Wipe out. So that's why I set up for you is that chapter 17 and chapter 18 is going to reveal the details of all this. But right here we're being told it's over. The island flies flees, flees. The mountains are not to be found. Hailstones are falling from heaven on the people. And are they repentant? Are they turning to God? No. They continue to curse God even with the fall of the empire. We'll see why. I'm going to read chapter 18. Because of the cataclysm that takes place. And the impact that presents upon them, that's why they do not repent, but they continue to curse God. So what chapter 16 does is just paints this broad, stroking brush and say... Look, it's going to fall. It's going to be severe. It's going to be great. It's going to be decisive. Be ready. Be prepared. And when we get to chapter 17 and verse 1, he says, come, I'll show you the judgment of this Babylon the great. And that's what he's going to then do the next two chapters. Let me show you the details. Let me expand this for you. But before we get to that, I want you to see. It's fall is certain. It has come. It is done. It's over. I want to leave you with just two thought lessons for you. First, it all comes from verse 15 of chapter 16. It's that one verse right there. and It says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. God likes to talk like that in judgment. He always comes in judgment like a thief. And that's what's so interesting in how he talks. And that gives us two great lessons. First of all, when he speaks of God's judgment coming like a thief, he's talking about this nation. He's talking about a national judgment here and how he's going to come. No nation ever thinks that they're going to fall. Babylon thought it'd go on and on. Persia thought it would go on and on. And Greece did. And Rome did. And we do. And yet everybody has always fallen. Every empire, every nation has risen and fallen. The first lesson is we have to always be ready for that possibility. It reminds us not to tie our hope in this nation. It rose up over 200 years ago. Who knows when it'll go, but it'll go the way of the world just like all the other nations, just like all the other empires, just like everything else in the past. We like to think we'll always be here, and that's never been the case. And all we have to do is go back into a little bit of history and be reminded that peoples in the past thought that they would always stand, and yet they've always fallen. And the second one is just as much as I am coming like a thief applies to national judgments, it also applies to how God described his final return over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So I'm going to leave you with a reading of those 11 verses and then that will be our lesson. Remember how God said he would come at the very end and bring about his judgments not only upon nations, but upon all flesh, all individuals, as we will all stand before God. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet of hope, help for the, a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Don't forget, a final judgment is coming. We must be prepared. We don't know when that time will come. Be as children of light, longing for and waiting that day. All right, pull your songbooks out.